I'd like to welcome all of you here, whether you're here in Bellingham or those of you in Skagit. And Skagit, I want to say thank you so much for being the body of Christ uh, to Pastor Brian and Shauna and their family uh, with the loss of her father. Thank you for surrounding them with your love, your support, and we continue to lift them up in prayer. Uh, those of you in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, good to have you with us. We'll have you know that our forecast calls for us to break 70 degrees for the first time since September, so we're just like Florida. Take that. And those of you in the live stream online, good to have you with us as we continue in this series, Calm in the Chaos. Before I get into the sermon, I want to tell you about a really wonderful experience that I had this week. Um, I'll back up. When I first moved to Bellingham in 1987 to be the youth pastor at the then Cornwall, Church, uh, Cornwall Park Church of God, um, there was a, a woman who was in her mid-70s as a part of our congregation, and her grandson was in my youth group. Now, what's interesting now, a little over 30 years later, uh, this morning, uh, some of her uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and her great-great-grand-twins uh, were at church. And, um, and what's so beautiful is that this woman who was in 75, uh, this coming Saturday, Helen Kristen turns 105. And, yeah, and, and wait, wait, wait. And as a woman who is near 105, every week at this service, the 11 o'clock service, she joins us with the live stream. So would you guys all say happy birthday to Helen? Yeah. All right. Helen, it is so good. And I got to go spend some time with her this week. And what an absolute blessing it was to be able to spend time with her. And I'll tell you a little bit more. She's going to help me with my sermon a little later uh, at the end. But it was such a wonderful time. I, just, I wish every single one of you could sit down with her for a half hour. I mean, she sang me hymns in Swedish. She sang hymns in English. She quoted scripture. We read scripture. We prayed together. And I walked away a blessed man. It was, it was absolutely amazing. So, Helen, I love you. So glad to have you with us again today. Thank you for blessing so many of us. Hey, uh, we're in this series, Calm in the Chaos. And after last weekend, I had a gentleman come up to me and said, I, I kind of want to take you to task on a, something you said in your sermon. I got an issue with it. And I said, okay. He said, you told me and you told us that, that uh, worry doesn't work. And I said, that's right. That's the blank. It took us two weeks to get it filled in, but we got it. Worry doesn't work. He said, you also said that, this stud, uh, quoted this statistic that 85% of what I worry about doesn't come true. I said, right. He said, well, it sounds like it's pretty effective to me then. So if that's the strategy that you want, it took some of you a while to get that one. If that's the strategy you want, then, then you can go ahead and do that. But that's not what God would have for us. It seems that, that, that we are just in our, in our worries. Our worries are just myriad. And in any area of life, but as I mentioned before, if or when you have kids, your worry quotient proliferates uh, just exponentially. But as parents, you put yourself into a false sense of security, convincing yourself that when they turn 18, all your worries will be done away with. And some of you are laughing because you know that at 18, if or when they do move out, they go away, but your worries stay behind. In fact, sometimes they get bigger. And here's the other crazy thing, is that there's this worry mitosis that takes place, because while you continue to worry, and even more so about your kids, your kids go off, and last year, the American uh, College Health Association reported that 61% of college students in 2017 reported that they felt overwhelming anxiety. So they become warriors. It seems that as the human race, as human beings, we have this finite, limited ability to live, but an infinite capacity to worry. 
And what's amazing is with our infinite capacity to worry, it even reduces our finite capacity to live. Jesus said these words, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? In fact, it will take hours away from your life. So we've been looking at what does God's word have to say about worry, stress, anxiety, and how to live calm in the chaos. Been looking specifically at about four or five verses in Philippians chapter 4. If you're just joining us, haven't been there, we have these cards that have some of these verses on this. And if you didn't get one of these or if you need more of these cards, we'd encourage you to pick them up today on your way out. We want to encourage you to read this every single day, to memorize these words, and if you need even more, uh, there's some verses on the back that you can uh, look at, let it just kind of uh, cover your mind with the truth of God's word. But to have that, we've been looking at these, this passage out of Philippians chapter 4, and we've been using as really the foundation for the whole series the acronym CALM that came out of um, Max Lucado's book, uh, Anxious for Nothing, with each word, each letter being a week. So the first week, the C stood for celebrating God's goodness. We were to celebrate God's goodness. Last week, we looked at the A, and that is to ask for God's help. Today, we get to the L, and that is to leave our concerns with God. Leave your concerns with God. And, we've been, and next week, we'll, we'll deal with the M. But, but this celebrating God's goodness, Paul jumps right out, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord, in the goodness of the Lord, and, and do this always. Live in a continual state of rejoicing, celebrating in God's goodness. And then as we looked last week, when, when uh, the verse would say, don't be anxious for anything. Worry about like absolutely nothing. But in every circumstance, in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Just, just ask for God's help. That you would exchange your worry for worship. That you would exchange your stress for this supplication. You would exchange your anxiety by asking him. And I told you, because we skipped over the thanksgiving, that we would cover that today. He says, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Psychologists will tell you that one of the healthiest attitudes, one of the healthiest approaches of, to life that you can ever take is that of, of thankfulness, of gratitude. And the Bible just is saying, listen, when you're in these times of worry, if you can turn your attention to be grateful, it will do something within you. It will change you. There's so much to be grateful for. You say, well, in my circumstance, that's why I'm worried. There's not to be thankful for. The fact that we have a heavenly father who not only invites, but encourages and commands us to bring our request to him. Thank God for that, that he hears it, that he knows that he cares. Thank God that he is a loving God and he always only wants the very best for us. Thank God that, that he is an all-knowing wise God and he knows what's best for us and that he is an all-powerful God and he's able to orchestrate things for our good or redeem them for our good and for his glory and to just be thankful, to find the things of God to be thankful for. And as you give these requests, these, these petitions and, and, and prayers to God is to just say, God, I'm going to give these to you and I'm thanking you that you're going to hear these and you're going to work this out. I may not understand it, but I'm going to thank it forward. I'm thanking you now for how you're going to deal with this. And then we get to this verse 7. And this is the one I really want us to spend some time on today. Verse 7 is so full, I want us to just kind of pull it apart, phrase by phrase, even word by word in some cases. And, and in, this, uh, in this verse, uh, Philippians 4, 7, all the things he's talked about lead up to this. It points up to this. The whole rejoicing of letting your gentleness be, be evident, the fact that the Lord is near, a prayer and petition, thanksgiving, pre presenting your request to God. He says, this is why. Here's the outcome. This is the payoff. Here's the result. And verse 7 says, 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, let's take a look at that. The peace of God. He's not talking about military peace. He's not talking about peace in our world. He's not talking about international peace or financial peace or peace of mind. He's talking about the peace of God. I think it was last weekend I talked about Gerald Hawthorne in his commentary on Philippians. Hawthorne, I believe it was, points out that this expression, peace of God, this is the only place in the New Testament where you find this expression. And it's very unique. When he's saying the peace of God, he's not talking about peace with God. And that's a beautiful thing. We sing about that. We celebrate that. That's wonderful. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, therefore, since we are justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's great that what Christ did on the cross bridged the gap so that we can have a right relationship. We have peace with God, but that's not what he's talking about here. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great reality to live in. It's the best. And he's not talking about peace from God, which is an amazing thing. It's what God's doing in our life. It's the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. It's this transformation that Jesus, in through his Spirit, is, is bringing about to our inner being. But that's not what he's talking about here. He says this phrase, peace of God, is something that is not peace with God or peace from God. Karl Barth, the great theologian, he said, it's the very peace that God himself has. That it's this calm serenity which is characteristic of the very nature of God. It's it's a hard concept to to grasp. Let me give you an illustration that may help you understand this. Um, The number one fear that people have of flying is turbulence, which is interesting. The number one fear is not the plane crashing in, in a fiery death. The number one fear of people flying is turbulence. And maybe it's because it's so much more prevalent. It's you know, almost uh, ubiquitous on almost any flight. That's the number one fear. And y- some of you understand this. You hit a little rough a patch of air and people's knuckles go white and they're gripping things. They're sweating. They're making prayers and, and promises to God they'll never fulfill. They're grabbing someone's pearls and turn them into rosaries, doing whatever they can to try and cope with all this stuff. And he's like, whoa, whoa, relax. You just want to say, hey, didn't Jesus say I'll never leave you or forsake you? And then people say, yeah, but he said, lo, I am with you always, not at 35,000 feet. Anyway, so we get all freaked out about this. Here's the amazing thing that if you ask pilots about turbulence, they don't get freaked out at all. They said turbulence is an annoyance. The biggest concern we have is that we can't get our our, stewards and stewardesses to do the cabin service, and it's going to have to be putting the seatbelt sign on so that people can't get up. That's our biggest concern. It's not about the plane. We know how these planes are built. We know what turbulence does and doesn't do. We've been in this and worse. A wing is not going to fall off. We're not going to crash because of turbulence. They're not concerned at all about that. In fact, I talked to a retired commercial uh, pilot this week, and I asked about this. And he used a word about passengers' fear of turbulence on flights. And he wasn't being demeaning, but he used the word nonsensical. He says, why would they be so afraid of this turbulence? The turbulence feels worse than it is. All right. So you're in your chair, you hit some rough air, there's some turbulence, and you're gripping everything. Now, at that point, you can have peace with the pilot. You have a great relationship. You're not holding anything against him. He's not holding anything against you. That's fine. You're still freaked out. 
You can even have the peace from the pilot because he comes over the, over the speaker and he says, listen, we're going to hit some rough air. We're going to find a different elevation, different altitude. Maybe we can get out of this. But, you know, here's the good news. We might get land a little earlier, whatever. It's what if, while you're freaking out, and the pilot's saying this is no big deal, we could have his peace. Like, we could be as peaceful in this moment as he is. That's the peace of the pilot. So this pilot that I talked to this week, he said, people get so upset about this rough air. He said, it's amazing. In some degrees, it's no different than going down a long gravel driveway that has some, some potholes and some rough area. It's a rough road. It's inconvenient, but it's not going to kill you. He says, it's just rough air. Why would they be so upset? And when we get into the turbulence and the storms of our life, it's not just peace with God. We have that. And it's not just these words that peace from God. It's to have God's peace, the peace. He's not freaked out. He's behind the wheel. He's seen this and worse. It's to have his peace within us. And he says, that is a peace that transcends all understanding because it's not human. It's not rational. It doesn't make sense. It's divine. It's God's peace in us. And this whole idea of, of this peace that would, would transcend our understanding because it's God's peace is something that Jesus says to his disciples. He knew that they were going to be heading for a, a patch of, of rough air. There was going to be some turbulence in their life, and it would feel worse than it really was. They would be freaked out, but in the end, they would, they would land, and it would all be great. And in John 14, he talks to them about this, and he says, hey, listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Later in that same chapter, John 14, verse 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Like the peace of God, the peace that I have, I'm giving you my peace. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It's the peace that God himself experiences. He says, I give that to you. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, he says, will guard your hearts and your mind to have that peace that Jesus has. And he gives it, gives it to us. It'll guard your heart and your mind. Now, this word guard, this word guard, it's a military word. Now, think about who's writing this, where he is, and who he's writing it to, and where they are. Paul is writing this. He's arrested in Rome. He understands a military guard. He's surrounded by guards. He's been chained to guards. He, he has these Roman soldiers all around him. He's writing this to the church in Philippi. Philippi, this little town up in kind of northern uh, Greece by Turkey, they're a part of the Roman Empire. There's this thing, you read this in your history books, called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And for about 200 years, there was relative peace in the Roman Empire. The reason there was relative peace was because there was just this presence of Roman soldiers everywhere every town, every country, to keep this peace. So yes, while things were peaceful, it's because of this military was making sure things stayed peaceful. The people in Philippi, they're in a town. They're surrounded with Roman guards. Every town is. So when he says, this will guard, they get it. They understand the military idea of people surrounding them. It's almost as if he says, there's this divine martial law that takes place in your inner being. That God sends in the troops. He, he sends forth a detachment with the peace of God. Uh, a week or so ago, I was watching a documentary on the Panama Canal. 
fascinating. They were talking about the building of the Panama Canal, but then it quickly shifted to this um, really kind of a politically charged issue of should the, the canal zone, which had been under U.S. jurisdiction since like 1908, should it be returned to the Panamanian, to people from Panama? And, and there, was, there was all, like some presidents were saying, we built this canal, it's our canal, we'll hold on to this canal. And others were saying, no, we ought to give this back to them. And, and Jimmy Carter eventually said, you know, let, let's do this. Anyway, way too much detail, watch it on your own. But in the 70s, they drew up, in the late 70s, they drew up these treaties that would kind of lay out the plan over the course of the next 20 years as they turned this back over to Panama, that by December 31st, 1999, all of the control of the United States would be hands-off and would all be run by Panama. Now, it was all signed, it was all looking good, until something happened in the 80s. And that is that Manuel Noriega became the ruler, the leader of Panama, and things went south. Some of you will remember this. In December of 1989 and January of 1990, the United States invaded Panama, and especially this, this zone, uh, the canal zone bombs and troops and all that. Well, in this documentary, they were interviewing a man named Joseph Wood. At the time of this invasion, Joseph Wood was the director of the Office of Executive Administration of the Panama Canal Commission. That's a big title. But he was an American, and he was in the, in the, in the zone while all this was happening. He said one day he's in his house, and an 18-wheeler pulled up in front of his house, and out of the back soldiers began pouring out and surrounding his house. And he couldn't tell, are these Noriega's men? Are these Americans? Am I going to be kidnapped or killed or am I going to be protected? And while he's sitting there and his house is being surrounded, his phone rang, his neighbor called and said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but your house is surrounded with, with, with soldiers. He said, yeah, I, I see that, but I can't tell where they're from. And his neighbor said, I can't either. After an hour, he said, well, i got to figure this out. So he walks out the front door, and one of the soldiers says, we need you to stay in your house, sir. And right then he knew. These were friendlies, here to protect, to surround. He was going to be okay. So Paul says, listen, this peace of God comes in, and it surrounds. It, it, it guards you. Some of you were raised in church. You remember singing the Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Bulwark Never Failing. I would encourage you this week in your free time, go back, dig out the old hymnal, pull it up online, what have you. Read those lyrics. It's fascinating how he paints this picture of in this world where we have our turbulence, where we have these war zones that's going on, how God just surrounds us in his son and his word and our ultimate victory. And that, that there's, this, there's this guarding. And he says there's a guarding of the things that bring about worry and anxiety in our lives, our hearts and our minds. He says guard, guard your heart. And that's the source of where we have this emotion, where we have our feelings. Because so often, as we talked about, Worry is not logical, it's emotional. And our feelings aren't always trustworthy. He says, this peace of God will guard your feelings. Now, like I said, I grew up in church singing hymns, but I also had Sunday school, and we sang choruses too, fun ones. Like, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Yeah, that was a great song, and there was all these other verses too. I got the wonderful love of my blessed Redeemer way down in the depths of my heart. Where? You know, and, and then we got the, you know, and if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch. Which really is bad theology about spiritual warfare. 
But there's this verse that says, I've got the peace that passeth understanding down in my heart. Now, again, my brother and I were able to take anything sacred and destroy it. So we'd say, I've got the pizza, pasta, undigested down in my gut. Okay, so anyway, my mom hated that one. But I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. He says, the peace of God, God's peace, the peace that he has, will guard your hearts. And not only that, it will guard your mind. It will guard your mind. As we talked about, when we have this worry, it comes from this little chicken little in our head that's saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling, when in reality it's not. It's faulty thinking, and he will guard our minds with right thinking. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because next week, this is all of next week as we conclude this series, this is what we're going to be talking about, right thinking in verse 8. So we won't spend a lot of time on that. But he says, listen, this peace of God that you can't even understand, it like... It comes and it surrounds and guards to make sure that your heart and your mind, your feelings and your thoughts are right and it protects you. It guards you. It surrounds you with those things. And then he makes one other little point that's very important. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, not just because you're a power of positive thinking person, not just because you're going to distract your mind. It's in Christ Jesus. As he always does, he points people to Jesus. I mean, in, in this little letter, there's only like 104 verses in the whole letter. 40 different times he points them to Jesus. 40 times he mentions Jesus. He does it again. He just points them to Jesus. He says, listen, this is the one. Jesus is the one. And then we find that in Christ Jesus. I wonder, Paul being a Pharisee, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, he would have grown up knowing the Torah. He would have grown up knowing the law, knowing the prophets. I wonder when he says this, if there's a part of his mind that thinks back to that prophecy that Isaiah wrote about the birth of Jesus 700 years earlier that talked about this one who would come. And I wonder when he's talking about peace that he thinks about this out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. I mean, you, sometimes you, the, the thought of government causes all kinds of worry and anxiety. You got Trump calling, you know, Kim Jong-un the rocket man and him calling him a dotard. And you got Putin with his shirt off riding a horse and the queen's 92 years old. All kinds of worries and stress. That all pales into the comparison of having Nero, this out of control emperor with no accountability, who's the most powerful man in the world, overseeing the entire Roman Empire. And maybe Paul says, you know why I can have peace even with our government? It's because it's on his shoulders. And then there are these titles of this one, the wonderful counselor. When I've got my worry and anxiety and stress, I go to the one who can hear me, who can guide me, who can give me wisdom, who can comfort me. He is the wonderful counselor that I need in these times. He's the mighty God. The things that I'm worried about, I don't know how I'm going to handle this, don't know how it's going to work out. There's a God who has the power and the strength that can, can change that, can orchestrate all things to work to his good and, and to my good and his glory, can redeem things that are even bad and bring it back around. And it's not just this all-knowing, all-powerful deity that lives out there. There's a connection. There's a family commitment. He's my everlasting father. He loves me. He cares for me. He's committed to me. And... He's the prince of peace. This prince 
of peace. And maybe Paul says, that's why. That's why. Because this peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds, it comes from the one who's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace. I don't know if you've ever been going through a season where you're, you're concerned, you're burdened, you're worried, you're stressed, you're filled with anxiety, and someone comes up to you and says, you know, I, don't, I, I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. Well, great, you're not me and I am. It's like th those words don't always help, especially if it's from some free spirit who hasn't balanced a checkbook in 20 years, doesn't lock the door, and hasn't seen the doctor ever. It's like, you know, no, I don't want to live that way. But sometimes... Depending on who says that and in what context, that it can actually bring a great deal of relief and comfort. If it's someone that has maybe some expertise, someone that you trust in an area, you're all concerned about, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough to retire, I'm not sure about this and that. And, the, and if you have a financial advisor who does this and you, is trustworthy and you, you believe the things that he or she says, and, and they just look at you and say, I see your portfolio, I see how many years you got. You know what? I just don't think I would worry about that if I were you. It's like, Okay, all right. You know, you, you've been on the internet because you felt something. And now you're convinced you have every disease known to man. And you go to see the doctor and you tell him about this symptom. And the more you read, the more symptoms you found. You know, like you have all of it. And the doctor says, whoa, 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 you know what? I don't think I'd worry about that if I were you. It's like, okay. Yeah, you're worried about, am I ever going to graduate? Will I get all these classes? And you're in there talking to your advisor, and they see your, you know, what, you've, what you've taken, what you need. They know your major and all these things and what's available and how many quarters you have left. And they look at it all, and they say, you know what? Yeah, I don't think you have to worry about it all. <sighs> okay. What if, what if the Prince of Peace, the author, the Redeemer, the Sustainer of all life were to say, I don't think I'd worry about that if I were you. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, he spends a whole lot of time talking about this issue, worry. He says this, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. He says, I don't think I'd worry about this if I were you. This is our Prince of Peace saying this. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Let me just quickly reiterate something we said last week. This is no way recommending or endorsing irresponsibility. That's not what Jesus is saying. The Bible says again and again, use wisdom, live wisely. What he's saying is, don't worry. It's not a good strategy. It won't change anything. In essence... Even bird brains get this. Because your heavenly father, not their heavenly father, he's their creator, but your heavenly father, your heavenly father feeds them. Now, it's interesting this whole thing with the birds because Matthew comes back to this and, and talks about, you know, tells us what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. Matthew records this. Remember, Matthew had been a tax collector, so money was important. He was really big on that. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, he records what Jesus said, not just about birds, but a specific bird, sparrows. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Like, really cheap. Why you would buy them, I don't know. There's not a lot of meat on them. 
You know, you have the game and we're having wings. Little sparrow wings don't have a lot. I don't want, anyway, they're cheap. Two for a penny. And he says, even these cheap birds, not one of them falls from the sky without your father taking note of it. Thursday after work, I left. I'd just been going over my notes. I'd just read this. I went for a run, heading out northwest. And as I was running along the road, um, seriously, this is like, the time was amazing. There was a little dead sparrow on the side of the road. It probably got hit by a truck or, or a car or something. And I ran past him like, oh, little buddy, I do this. I talk with dead birds. I don't know why I do it. I'm okay, really, I am. But I ran past this little bird, and I said, oh, little buddy. And I kept going, and then this verse came to my mind. And let's say it got hit by a, the, the trailer of a semi. The driver doesn't even know. And I thought for a moment, this is my deep thoughts on my run. I thought for a moment, there are over 7 billion people on this planet. I am the only, possibly the only human being that even knows that little bird is dead. But there is a heavenly father who runs the universe. And he's aware enough to know that that little bird is there. That God would care even for this little bird that no one except me knows is even dead. It's an amazing thing. He says there are two sold for a penny. Here's an interesting thing. Luke gives the same account. He gives some other details. Remember, Luke was a doctor, very detail-oriented. Luke states it this way. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So this is a Costco thing. The more you buy, the cheaper it gets per unit. So you see how that goes. You buy two sparrows, how much does it cost? One penny. You spend two pennies, how many sparrows do you get? Five. You get one thrown in for free. It's like it's a little bonus sparrow. This is great. It says, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Notice what he's saying. In the bonus pack, when you're spending two cents, there's a throwaway bird we don't even charge you for. We don't even care about it that much. He says, even the throwaway bird that we don't even pay for, God does not forget that one. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, he says. You are worth more than many sparrows. Right now, just without saying a word, look at the person you're sitting next to. And without saying a word, calculate how many sparrows you think they're worth. Don't tell them whatever you do. Don't tell them how many sparrows you think she's worth. How many she's worth. You know, we were a couple, uh, a couple months ago, we were in Israel. We were in Bethlehem at this restaurant. And my youngest daughter, Alyssa, was with us. And so uh, they took her out. She came back in with these Bedouin robes and this headdress and drums and doing all this thing. And, and so Sam, our guide, he says, Bob, how many camels for Elisa, your daughter? I'm like, hmm. There was a time in her life where I would have sold her for a blind three-legged llama. I mean, you know, <laughs> those teenage years, it's like, you got a dead possum, you got a deal, baby. Uh, but, but we worked through it. We worked through those years. And, and <laughs> sorry, I sure hope she's not watching. Uh, anyway, um, but I thought as her father, if there was really not just like wedding dowry, but if someone wanted to buy my daughter, there are not enough camels on the face of the planet for me to sell my daughter. And God says, don't you understand? You're his son. You're his daughter. He cares for a sparrow. You're worth so much more than a sparrow. He would pay the price of the blood of his only son for you you see it? That Jesus, our Prince of Peace, says, I don't think I'd worry about this if I were you. 
See, when we worry, worry invites us, it it invites us to live in, in a past that we can't change or to live in a future that we can't control. And when we have this past that, that we can't change, there's all this regret that goes with that and it just drags us down. Or this future that we can't control, there's all this fear of what's going to happen. And it all drags us down, all that. And when we live in the past or when we live in the future, we miss the peace in the present with Jesus. And especially when we project forward, anxiety always wins the day. And so at this last of this passage, Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying there won't be trouble. He's saying there will be trouble. There'll be trouble today. There'll be trouble tomorrow. What he's saying is, don't borrow tomorrow's trouble and miss what God has for you today. Live here and now. See, we we exist at this weird intersection point between the past and the present. We live in the eternal now. It's always now for us. You know, what was now for us a few seconds ago is in the past now. What will be now for us five seconds from now is in the future. Now there it went. Now it's in the past. We live in this now moment. And that's where we find God. While God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, while God was, is, and is to come, while God is eternal, we are not. And we live in the now, and we find God in the now. When Moses asked God, okay, so, so what's your name? Who do I tell, tell them that sent me? And God said, tell them, I am. Now, present tense, I am sent you. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to understand that, that God says, I want to meet you here and now in this time. And maybe what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you can remember the past, But remember it with gratitude. Remember it with gratitude, being thankful that, man, God saw me through. This too did pass. I I don't have to do that again. I learned some lessons. God was faithful. There was only one set of footprints. Whatever. Just remember with gratitude. And as far as the future, anticipate it. But anticipate it with hope that God's promises are real. He's already there. He's eternal. I'll never have to face this alone. But live in the peace here and now. At this time, in this moment, we live here. 80 or 90 years ago, there was a man named Reinhold Niebuhr who wrote a prayer. A part of the prayer has become extremely familiar. Most people don't know the entire prayer. But it's referred to as the serenity prayer. And the first part says this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Incredible wisdom in this. Used a lot in recovery circles. Many of you know this. What some of you may not be aware, this was only one-third of the prayer that he originally penned. It goes on. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. Taking, as he did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. That, yeah, there are some things in the past I can't change and there's some things in the future I can't control, but this day and this moment, 
I can live with him, to live with this gift of Jesus' presence in my present tense. This gift of today, that I would have Jesus here and now in my present tense, that his presence is with me. As I was thinking about this, and I love words, I wrote this down, that we have a present tense Lord for our tense present life. We have a present tense Lord for our tense present life. And Jesus invites us not to live in the past and not to live in the future, but to live today, depending on him, leaning on him, trusting in him this day. Isn't that what he got at when he was praying in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Pointing back to the manna that God gave to the people in the wilderness one day at a time. Isn't this a theme you see throughout Scripture in Isaiah 41 where it says, So do not fear, for I am with you, present tense. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God, present tense. Or out of the Psalms, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Like right now. Or out of that familiar Psalm 23, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, our present tense prince of peace says, for today, walk with me, trust me, and hear me say, I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. At the end of this Sermon on the Mount, I find this fascinating. Jesus did this whole discourse on, on worry and stress and how meaningless and useless and ineffective it was. At the end of that sermon, he says, if anyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, this is very important, not hears these words of mine and remembers them, hears these words of mine and writes them down, hears these words of mine and discusses them in their small group, hears these words of mine and agrees with them, hears these words of mine and understands. He says, if you hear these words and actually put them into practice, You'll be like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the turbulence came, when the storm came, when the winds came, when the difficulties came, the house was rock solid. And I just wonder, is, is if Paul was familiar with that, if he said, and that was good preaching that Jesus did. And if maybe he borrowed a page out of Jesus' sermon. Because he writes to them in Philippi about not being anxious and don't worry and all that. And then if you jump down to verse 9, he says, And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, which he said, I'm not just giving you blank words. I live this out. Put it into practice. It's the same thing Jesus said. And then he says, And the God of peace will be with you. This is a phrase that he uses at almost the end of almost every one of his letters. May the God of peace be with you. May the God of peace be with you. Look at this. Verse 7, he uses an expression only once in any of his writings, the peace of God. Verse 9, he uses this title, the God of peace. In verse 7, he says, the peace of God, God's very peace, the peace of God will guard. It'll guard your hearts. It'll guard your minds. And if you'll do these things, verse 9, the God of peace will guide He'll guide your life. You know what he's saying? Listen. You rejoice in the Lord. You pray. You'll be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. 
you do these things, God's very peace will guard your heart and the God of peace will guide you. Um, Great is thy faithfulness, verse 3 or 4. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for what? Today. Bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings. 10,000. They're all mine. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. And Jesus said, I invite you to live that way. Now I mentioned that I was going to have Helen... Kristen helped me with my sermon, and uh, the beautiful thing is that Helen's joining us now with the live stream, but Helen had sent me a video on Facebook Messenger, which is so cool, and I asked her if I could share a part of that uh, with you today, and so I want to share uh, 30 seconds of that video, and, um, and because her voice is a little bit frail, we have some subtitles, but listen to the wisdom of a woman who's lived 105 years. Oh, such a wonderful message. That Pastor Bob, you know, I sleep well all night because I know that the Lord is near me and I know that he will, he will take care of me. At that time, I have problems come, but I can just trust in him and live for him. When we talked about that, she said, Bob, every night I give all of my worries to Jesus and I sleep. And then she quoted Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And as we sat there, then she read for me Isaiah 26. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. See, Jesus, our present tense Lord, invites us to have the peace of God guard us and the God of peace guide us and to live every day in his presence, trusting in him and not worrying. To hear him whisper, I don't think I'd worry about that if I were you. Don't miss next week when we conclude this whole series. Stan, we're going to close with a song, and then I'll have a word of prayer, and we'll be out.